Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, his name is Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going wonderful. We hope it's going wonderful for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, um, we are going to be going over Q&A on Twitter. This is part two. Um, so make sure you follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound uh, to be able to ask a question in the future. If you want to get access to our backlog on the podcast, go to FocusedCompound.com slash app. Uh, we record frequent uh, videos on there, and we do a lot of things to make it worth it for our subscribers of the app. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And then you also get uh, investing topics from Jeff every single day. So that's uh, pretty fun as well, uh, Monday through Friday. And then, of course, FocusedCompound.com is the uh, investing write-up yeah, website. Right so you're not going to write specific stocks, stocks, but it's more so different stuff. So it's having a lot of fun. I like the videos the best. So it's fun. Justin, okay, tell me so to do videos for a very long time. The app, if you want to yeah. make Andrew happy, get that. There you go. Make me happy. So let's go. The first question, we're going to start doing, you know, two parts of this so we don't ever have to just like right. blaze through it. Uh, it says recently, common question is, what do you think young Buffett would do slash buy in the current environment? But more interesting to me is, what do you think young Joel Greenblatt will do slash buy in the current market? Or in the current environment? That's, That's a good, good question. question. So based on what he did, he would probably look at some things that were extreme, uh, like had extreme upside and things like that. That was kind of his focus, um, not just spinoffs and things like that, leaps and all of those sorts of things. So I would guess it could be some things like that. Um, this is a tough environment. He never invested in anything remotely as difficult as this environment for like value investors and finding things that are cheap. But um, yeah, I, I think that it could be some things where there's could be things emerging from bankruptcy. There will be some of that happening. Uh, could be some things that are leaps because there's a lot of those now. But I think more likely is like some things that are warrants and stuff like that, actually. Um, but so, yeah, I would say that's the most likely. And um, to like yeah. Clark Street value type of situation. Oh, yeah. Like Clark Street value. It's a good website. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think definitely things emerging from bankruptcy. And I think that uh, there are some things that are warrants in like industries that have been beaten down and stuff that might be possibilities too. Um, I think less spinoffs. I don't think there's been many spinoffs that are the kinds of things he likes. He liked a lot of things that were very highly leveraged. Um, like they had a lot of debt on them and things like that. And if you look at the spinoffs that he talks about in his book, it's actually, they're kind of a lot more attractive than the spinoffs today. So mm -hmm. I would say less spinoffs now. Yeah. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on MMMB. We could actually pull up QuickFS okay. and pull it up, quickfs.net. If you do sign up for the website, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. But we get a lot of people ask about this question or about this company. We do? Oh, yeah. MMMB. Okay. This is the Meatball Company. Oh. And I think so, right? Meatball manufactures, yeah, distributes prepared, frozen, and refrigerated food products primarily in the United States. Pretty sure this is the one. Whenever I think I, I read this, I always pronounce it Mamma Mia. I don't know why. It says Mama Mancini's. Yeah, but I say Mamma Mia. I assume Mancini's. Mamma Mia. Uh, Anyways, okay. any thoughts on the company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alta Fox owns this company. Okay. Um, my. Well, that's interesting. Share charm is very low, but beta is pretty high. I wonder what the shareholder base is like. Um, so, I mean, the one I would compare this to is AMNF, uh, Armanino. Uh, so that would be my problem here is that, is this more attractive than that? So let's see what the growth and stuff has been like in the last few years. Um, it's been pretty it good. Had some very big, well, from 9 million to 35 million, but we yeah, can't but see it's the very tiny very lumpy growth. So I wonder like how many facilities do they have and all those sorts of things? What did they do that caused that growth to be so high in one year and then lower in the next year and stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that'd be one of my questions about it. I, I mean, 
For me, I don't know enough details about it, obviously, to judge. But um, let's go to the uh, summary financials and give me what it looks like. Whoops. Okay. So um, the company was due, what's the revenue in 2013? 2013, 9 million. And what is it today? 35 million. Okay. So it's gone up four times in, um, what is that, seven years? Mm -hmm. So um, that's very big growth. What's the gross profit like? Uh, 31.8%, but it's ranged from 29% to 31 or 32%. Has it varied a lot though? Yeah, it has varied a lot. Yeah, it had uh, in 2017, 40% and then 2019, about 35%. It's probably not the kind of company I'd be very good at evaluating. That's a fairly, um, that has quite a bit. I mean, what was the lowest gross margin that you saw? 28.5. What's the highest? 30, I'm sorry, 40. That's just huge gross margin variation in a short period of time. It's very. I, this is a company that would be hard for me to judge that way. Now it's increased a lot. Look at that revenue growth from 2016, yeah. though. So if it's like you have one facility and your scale was poor at the beginning, and now it's a lot better. That might work out um, well for you, uh, but you'd have to know that. So I don't know that about the story because I haven't read about this company. But if it's caused by utilizing more and more capacity at, at a, the same number of places or something, that's very attractive. And that can explain changes in gross margin and stuff. But if there's other reasons for that, I don't know. The thing that surprised me was the lumpiness of the revenue growth. So if you do revenue growth by year, what are the percentage increases? 37.4 plus 5 plus 43 plus 53 I'm just rounding up plus four plus 22. So it's a wholesale thing. I mean, it can't be a retail. Well, thing. I mean, I, I was wondering what it is because you see the return equity. It's we right. have well, negative return neg equity. At the beginning, it was negative because they had. Yeah, no but, but right here they have positive uh, EPS. So I wonder what's going on there. Well, they have no equity. So what is they that? They had no equity in those years. Go to uh -huh. the balance sheet. So they, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. right. They had negative equity. Yeah. Because their retained earnings are negative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we look at where's their, uh, let's see, let's look at uh, shareholders equity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it went negative in 2017, 2018, 2019, because they had lost, they had had losses before then, I assume. Okay. I mean, where else would it come from unless they paid mm -hmm. something out? Yeah. Uh, so operating losses historically. So when do they start turning a profit? Let's see. 2018. Yeah. And they lost before then. So if it's something that has to do with scale and stuff that scaled up, then they're now going to make money. Then it could be very, very attractive if they turned a corner. And, and so that would, would be good. Um, I don't know if that's the case here. It looks like it might be. The thing that's surprising to me is the lumpiness of the sales growth. That's not a normal sort of you wouldn't be up and down like that unless you have something like you're more wholesale or something like that. I don't you like you have to be based on some sort of relationships or distribution or something happened there. It the that's not a normal sales uh, curve, uh, growth curve. Mm -hmm. um, so what does the business description say? Let's see. Manufacturers and distributes prepared frozen and refrigerated food products primarily in the United States. The company offers beef, turkey, chicken, and pork meatballs with sauce, meatloaf, and meats and sauces. So this is actually yeah. the perfect thing for you as, on your all-meat diet, Jeff. Yeah, I don't eat sauces, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sells its products to supermarkets and mass market retailers okay, so that's and food distributors. It. So they had some big accounts or something that started uh, giving them distribution. So yeah, if, if the distribution has been increasing a lot and the core economics are great, then it's uh, very successful that way. But I would put in AMNF just to show people what I mean about another company. Uh, this company makes pesto. Um, I know the history of it a little bit better. So if you look, the reason why this is interesting to me is the pricing and stuff on it. So EV to sales here is what, 1.6? Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the history of what it's done in terms of revenue growth and things like that, it has been able to grow at like 8% a year for the last 10 years. 
Um, and just, uh, it's a little, I just would compare the two companies. I would strongly suggest that you study both of them together. It's interesting. The gross profits are already higher at the meatball company than at the pesto company, which is pretty interesting considering the size. I mean, like what's the revenue that they do here at the pesto one? 42 million, 42 million. I think they have only two facilities in California or something that they do all of it out of. And one of them sells some other stuff. So a lot of the pesto's out of like one facility. Um, so 42 million. So what their gross profit right now? 15 million. Okay. And then when we look at the meatball company, 35 million revenue, gross profit, 11 million. Yeah. So they could have better economics, um, early on and stuff. Uh, and if they're growing very fast, then it could be really impressive that way. Um, but I would compare the two companies. I wouldn't study one without looking at the other. Yeah. I tried reaching out to investor relations at AM and F and yeah, I got uh, interested in talking to anybody. Nothing. Yeah. Tried a couple of times. So if anyone has any information on that or you have talked to them, reach out to me, Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Uh, here you go. What are your goals and what motivates you? Why don't you take that one? What motivates me? What are my goals? Well, the goals are make, um, you know, focus compounding a success. Okay. The, you know, the investing side of things mm-hmm. with and you build this, this with. Side? Huh? You don't care about this side? I consider that the podcast has been, you know, very successful, I think. Um, You know, we're trying to monetize it a little bit more now. uh, So that as well. Uh, But, you know, just uh, have a a long career. Okay. Working with somebody. Uh, I mean, I talk to you about all the time. Yeah. It's like setting things up so we don't end up like this person or that person that I mentioned who, you know, was in the business for X number of years successful and then decided. Yeah. We don't want to ever have to be like forced out, if that makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like some investors and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's size. Maybe it's certain things. Maybe it's ego. You know, maybe they have a good run and then they're almost like forced out, you know, whether that's because they're very wealthy and then they have a couple of bad years on underperformers and just say, I'll just do this myself, you know, but I think it's uh, having the right processes in place early on and then uh, growing strategically. Cause that's what I think overwhelmingly um, hurts a lot of investors. Um, so, you know, what goals I, I would say, it's just, you know, making the whole focus compounding brand a success, I would say. Okay. And then, um, you know, having a good working relationship with Jeff and us not hating each other one day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and bring that one up a lot too. Yeah. You know, and just really just, um, you know, having a long career where we were very honest and did our best and had okay. great partners along the way. And as long as our partners know that, you know, we're very honest and are always doing our best. I think it's a good, uh, you know, it's a good mix for both us and them. Good. Good answer. What motivates you? Uh, what motivates me? Uh, being able to do what I want to do. Yeah. So that's, you know, why we do the, the, whatever goals we have financially and whatever is basically just to establish, um, the ability to keep doing things the way we want to do them for a long enough time. So that means both like not, um, doing certain things, taking in some kinds of money, doing whatever things, and also being able to do it for the long term. Those are the two most important. Because if you do, if you don't do either of those things, then you're going to end up having to do a lot of stuff you don't want to do. You could probably grow things faster and stuff if you um, did certain things that probably uh, would lead you to end up having a day that isn't how you want to spend your day Mm -hmm. basically yeah sometimes i'll tell people if they ask i'll say you know jeff could be worth 10 billion dollars tomorrow and i know his life wouldn't change much he'd still want to just sit in the chair all day and read on his kindle or read annual reports and hang out you know uh, about someone and they're like isn't it weird that buffett still lives in the same house or whatever i'm like no why would you move into a different house yeah jeff's like no that sounds a lot like uh, that sounds a lot like (laughs) what i would do 
We're looking at option dilution. Do you use vested, issued, or something else? Uh, what I really do is I look at how much the company has diluted its stock over time. Um, if there are extreme examples of weird stuff where, like, they would be, well, we were talking about a company recently with this, where, like, they hadn't diluted, like, at all in the last 10 years or so, but they look ready to dilute by really meaningful amounts. Like, it could be 5% or more in a year. Um, I probably would just stay away from that unless I really understand the people. But in general, I use the amount of dilution that they've had over very long periods of time, um, which is not the most accurate way of modeling and everything, but it just is a common sense and works better. If you try to use dilution of like right now to calculate exactly what the share count is, that doesn't matter because trust me, a management that like has been paying itself a lot for 15 years or something diluting, will figure out ways to change things and stuff. So there's plenty of diluting in the future. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> conversely, a company that has like no history of diluting, even though they could, um, you know, they may dilute a lot once because of how the option plan is, but they won't keep doing things like that. So in my experience, the culture of dilution over a long period of time is much the more the important thing than trying to calculate what dilution will be based on the current plans that you know the, sh the share um, option plans and things they have mm -hmm. um uh, next question income balance and cash flow statement are important when analyzing a 10k but is the statements of changes in shareholders equity useful does jeff using time on it no when reading a 10k no the simple answer is it's completely useless if you have a thorough understanding of the other three statements it's superfluous um, so from the other three statements, you don't need the change in shareholders equity. Next question. He's asking us to go over Wells Fargo. Uh, WLC. That was some acronym I didn't understand. <laughs> I think this is what he's talking about. Yeah, I'm sure. So Buffett owns Wells Fargo. Buffett just bought more Bank of America. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on Wells Fargo? Uh, no, not really. I think all the big banks are pretty cheap. Um, Wells Fargo is obviously quite cheap on a price to book basis. I think that JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, are cheap and I don't have a lot more detail on that. I, I looked at Wells Fargo a long time ago and kind of felt it was too complicated for me. This goes back before their, their sort of, uh, account scandal and thing. Um, and I preferred the regional banks and understanding them. I don't know if I think the big banks are better than the regional banks, like put in BOK financial, for instance, BOKF. Okay. So I, I don't know, the price to book is not that different or something like that. Um, and I, I find that sometimes it's easier to understand those kinds of companies, those kinds of regional banks. Um, that's not, I know a lot of people own Wells Fargo or Bank of America or JP Morgan, and I'm not saying don't own those. I'm just saying there's also other banks that you could look at too. I think both are cheap right now. I, I don't think that big banks are, are um, more expensive in any way than the regional banks. And I, this might be a really good time to buy the big banks. But I am going to tell you that if you try to read the 10K of Wells Fargo um, or Bank of America or JP Morgan, um, it's going to be more difficult than you think. Uh, that plus the presentation plus everything to understand the bank. So you're going to go more on your beliefs about who's invested in it, who management is, whatever. It's harder to understand the very biggest banks in America. Um, and I just, so that's my only like caution on that. Do you, does it matter though? I mean, if they're as good and you, you don't actually understand them as well, but they look as good on the surface then, and they turn out to really be, then doesn't matter if they're cheaper, you should buy them. So I'm not saying don't buy the big banks. I'm just saying to anyone who hasn't read the 10 K's and stuff, you might be surprised how difficult they are. Let's see. Once you own a position, what is the process for maintaining the position? How often do you check and update financials quarterly slash annually question mark? Only follow company filings question mark. Do you follow filings from competitors question mark? Read industry reports question mark. Uh, it depends. 
Um, quarterly, yes. We update the financials and whatever quarterly. I mean, I don't, I, it's not like I keep Excel sheets on all these companies, but I read their releases. I mean, I read all their SEC releases, but I mean, um, I read their qu- basically quarterly is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, depends a bit on the company. Uh, companies that give extensive guidance and stuff uh, where not a lot changes, you know, like NACO, uh, other than like losing a customer or gaining a customer, um, they basically give guidance for a long time ahead and it's not going to deviate from that because they're working with customers who pretty much know when the power plant is going to be open and stuff. Um, as opposed to like a company that's selling stuff, right? Like a virtue is a retail company uh, that you could have pretty big changes quarter to quarter and will depend on the cyclicality of it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I, th- and then, yeah, we do read industry reports and we do fight. Uh, I like to follow industry news, follow competitors. That's mm-hmm. true too. Um, in companies where there's a lot of public competitors, we do follow that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Would you buy a company selling for 10 times revenue? What characteristics would it require? Any examples from the past on businesses that looked very expensive, but in fact were cheap? So it would have, it would probably have expanding EBITDA margins over time and require no, um, uh, capital to run. In fact, it might generate float and it would also probably have network effects. The most obvious examples would be companies like that could have these, you know, not that they should have traded 10 times, but the companies that would come closest to this would be things like um, MasterCard, Visa, um, Western Union, MoneyGram, um, in the early days, American Express, um, Facebook, things like that, because they uh, they have characteristics which mean that their EBITDA margins are almost certain to increase over time. And generally, they don't have to invest in like marketing and stuff. Uh, there's other people out there that do that for them. So basically, you have earnings that rise faster than the sales, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you need to have revenue that high. And then you also grow your revenue a lot, but without putting any capital in. If you had to put capital in, you can't really be worth 10 times revenue. So you have to be a software business or a, um, you know, something like that. And then you probably need some sort of network effect or something where someone else sells your product, uh, for you. So like you need a business that has agents or a business that, um, like media business is a good example because it grows really fast, um, that way. And then it doesn't really change the economics for you. Like Facebook is basically, um, something that doesn't have to go out and, and win new people over. They, they just grow. And then the economics you could see early on from what they were for their audience level. So things like that. And then it would have to be fairly small compared to the total, uh, possible addressable market. I, you know, it's going to be a lot of financial services, information, uh, services of some kind, Slash media. Those are really the only ones I can think of where that would happen. And it has to be one that doesn't take any actual capital. So like, that's basically it. Like mm-hmm. providing information services to something in financial services would be a really good example of what would uh, possibly be worth 10 times revenue. Next question. He says, Japanese net net, low margin business, but consistently profitable for seven plus years. Net current asset value growing, low debt, pays small dividend, been trading around 0.5 net current asset value for 10 years. Will it ever get re-rated? And then someone says, yes, but don't ask me when. Yeah, it will. <laughs> don't ask you when. Um, yeah, it, it will, probably. I mean, um, you'd be surprised at how much that changes. We should do the podcast sometimes where we show you that because people forget how different things look 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. What would amaze you about the net, what nets in some cases is they have been re-rated 
over very long periods of time, some of those net nets were actually not cheap stocks 20 or 25 years ago or something. They, at a different time in Japan's history, some of those stocks were actually um, pretty popular and stuff. So the same thing can happen again, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It took a very long time in the US. Um, there were net nets that were net nets through the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, it, yeah. I think uh, we'll make this our last question because I think it's a good question. He said, I live in Northeast England near the headquarters of Virtu Motors and plenty of their dealerships. If I were to do scuttlebutt on them, what would you want me to look for? That's really hard to say. I mean, the, the most important thing would be talking to um, the people who sell, basically. Um, so what their experiences and stuff, they would have some ideas about what it is at different places and how the culture could be different there versus other places. Um, that's probably the most important thing that you could get in terms of the people that you could talk to. You can, of course, talk to customers and things like that, but that's kind of hard because customers don't have that many examples of being able to compare all the different dealers and stuff. The people who are working on commission basically in the industry are going to be in almost any industry, the people that are, have the most information about it and stuff. So that can be ex employees, it can be current employees, it can be people who have worked at different places. It could be whatever that way. They have a real good idea of like the sales culture and everything there and can compare different places. That probably would be the, the one. People who sell a product in an industry are usually the best people to talk to. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Thank you so much for all the support. If you want to get access to our 200 plus uh, episode backlog of the podcast, go to focuscompounding.com slash app and be sure to sign up, uh, which is $7.95 a month. And you get access to daily write-ups from Jeff and then also frequent videos of us as well. Just pretty much more behind the scenes, more informal, but just talking about uh, whatever. I mean, we actually did a, a review on Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger the just kind of talked about movie. yeah <laughs> that's right uh, the book and just kind of we're going to have a lot of ideas I think it'll be a lot of fun so uh, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode